Well, welcome to Ginnamai. I'm I'm personally glad to be here. Uh, I I'm fine, but but I had what I'm going to call a hellish time getting this figured out, and I don't mean that lightly or derogatorily. Um, it's just for some reason I could not release any of the pressure that was felt like it was being oppressed upon me, and it's a s simple verse, um, but. It does have a great truth, and I don't know if it was spiritual warfare or my own stupidity or what the deal was, but I don't know what it was. I just know God does, and so that's fine for me, and we'll go from here. So tonight, we're looking at verse 11. So our review, um, obviously, as usual, we get our two terms to know. Positionally, a reference to one's position in relationship to something else, and experientially, a reference to one's experience in relationship to something else. My experience tonight in relationship to this study was not pleasant. However, my position here proves that God has triumphed. That's corny, I know, I don't care. Author is God, writer is James, brother of Jesus. And again, it was written sometime between 45 and 50 AD, unless you go to Thomas's Biblic class, in which case all the Bible was written sometime later, right? Precisely. Yeah. So it was written to believing Jews who we have identified as the diaspora because they were dispersed or diasporaed. Um, out because of persecution uh, after they believed on Jesus Christ as their Savior. James again deals with the topic, the whole book of true spirituality through the evidence of faith in action, self-control, unselfishness, generosity, impartiality, patience, and submission to God through prayer. James thus teaches what is truly spiritual, what true spirituality means, um, and also teaches us the mechanics needed in order to be truly spiritual. We're going to get a little bit of that concept tonight, um, and if I remember, or God reminds me when we get there, that we will actually bring that point back around. Review of pisteos. Pisteos is the word we have for faith. Uh, it means a complete dependency based on response, meaning that there's a relationship between two or more objects in which one of the objects is completely dependent upon the other for something or action, i.e. sitting in a chair. This should be pretty well boring at this point, this definition, this review. Uh, but I say it just to remind us and get our minds back in the right frame of mind for our study. That leads me then to the model of humanity. This is what Christ showed mankind about how man is to operate within a relationship to Jesus Christ, or to God the Father. Um, God the Father is the initiator. He says, he plans, he commences action. And mankind then listens, obeys, and responds with action as well. So God is the initiator, man is the responder. When that is skewed, you have what we call the term being out of fellowship or out of agreement with God on what he has said is right or proper. And when that is in its proper relationship with God the Father initiating and man responding, that's what we call being in fellowship or having fellowship with God because we are in agreement with the order of the relationship he designed us for. When we are out of fellowship, that is initiating ourselves or being responders to something other than God the Father, such as our sin nature, or possibly if we're that far gone, Satan and company themselves, we operate on what we call a human viewpoint. This is sight-based, and it's not sight meaning only eyes. It's sight-based meaning that we perceive things that are around us. And what we see, what we take in uh, through thought, through discussion, through visual uh, data, all these things we perceive, um, what we call human viewpoint 
is based upon all those things. The process or thought or process of thought or manner of thinking, which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. That's contrasted to what we call faith-based or the things that we don't see but believe. If we are operating in fellowship, we will be operating off of a complete dependency upon Scripture or what God has revealed to us in our relationship with Him. And therefore, the divine viewpoint is a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth, those doctrines of God's world system. So we've got the human's world system. What the human says is right, and what we see is how we learn about that uh, growing up. Are trained and grown in the world's ways and system of operation, yet we have to renew our minds, renovate it, and let God's world system take over. Therefore, the goal of the Christian is to remove human viewpoint from any purpose or application in his life and replace it with divine viewpoint. You can reference Romans 12, 1 and 2 for that concept and the mechanics on how to accomplish that within the original language in that verse, those two verses. Um, last week, and this gets into our new... Part, part 10 of Trials and Tribulation. I, I believe we're only going to have one more part to this unless God changes that. Uh, and I don't think he's going to rewrite scripture, but he may create a side note or a parenthetical thought or a rabbit trail, whatever you want to call it, that leads us into a part 12. But we have one more um, focus on Trials and Tribulation before we get to Temptation, and that will be next week, uh, Lord willing. So in verse 9 and verse 10, we have a contrast between what we call Adelphos ha tepinos, or the brother of lowliness, um, and then ha plusios, which is the rich man. Um, the brother of lowliness, Adelphos ha tepinos, lacks money, property, equity, etc. And this includes social skills, or not skills, but <laughs> we've talked a lot about nerds in the last few days, and social skills, the difference between nerds, they lack social skills, geeks have social skills, but they are still nerdy. Um, so we talked about this a lot at the retreat, so... If I let that oh. slip again, just explain. Just just note in your head that Todd really means social resources, meaning friends or re, or connections socially, um, not Facebook friends, but friends that can be used as resources. No Facebook. No, no, no. It was, it was called Camel Book. Um, the brother of loneliness lacks money, property, equity, and social status and connections. Uh, this is considered by human viewpoint to be a disadvantage because without those resources, whether physical or social, he lacks the ability to carry himself through his own trials and tribulations. That's contrasted to the rich man who has abundance of money, money, property, equity, social status. I almost said skills again. Social status, and because of those things, he's considered to be at an advantage by human viewpoint because he is able to handle his situations on his own. Now, verse 9, obviously or if you remember, said that the brother of lowliness, the humble man, is supposed to glory in the position that he is in, not of physically lacking resources, but in being that much, making it that much easier for him to trust upon God and carry him through the trial. The rich man is to glory in his being brought down to that point where the lowly man already starts because his resources are of no effect in actually dealing with trials and tribulations to produce spiritual growth. In other words, you can't buy spiritual maturity. You can't buy doctrine. You can't buy spiritual growth. What you can buy is the Bible that teaches you. And if you want to contribute to the church, it's not going to really affect what you learn. It's going to be in accordance with God's command as an offering. And that's a doctrine that we're not going to study for probably forever because we'll be in change for it forever.
Unless God takes a side note. Maybe we should take an offering again. I don't know. All right. This week. <laughs> you know, all college like students, college age students. Yeah. All right, there's my thirty cents that I got from tips at work today. <laughs> you can have it. I found this in the couch. <laughs> yeah, my couch. <laughs> hey, <laughs> the Lord provides. <laughs> all right, so James one eleven is the focus of our study today. And again, I said I almost skipped this verse and just went to the next part. One, I'm really excited for the next part, but apparently that was a bad idea. Um, whether God was disciplining me to get to this verse and bringing me to the point where I just said, fine, we'll do it, um, or whether Satan Company was keeping me from teaching something else or even trying to teach this verse, uh, I have no idea who it was, but I don't care because God does, and that's enough for me. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Ouch. James 1.11 begins with the word gar, actually it's the second word in the Greek text, um, and because it's the second word, it, it's a logical conjunction, it actually identifies a post-positive, which brings it forth to the first word in the sentence in English, the way we translate it, the way the Greek uh, is meaning it, is to put this word gar as the first word, so we have the logical conjunction or connection between verse 10 and verse 11 of four, and as you can see, it says it serves as a logical explanation to James' statement in verse 10 regarding the Plusios man. Uh, the Plusios man, if you remember, was the rich man. And in verse 10, it says the rich man, the Plusios man, is to glory in his humiliation, being made lowly, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. The Plusios man is again identified as one who possesses an abundance of physical and social resources, resources which will fade away like flowering grass. I haven't talked about this yet, but his, his own self... I'm not sure how to say that without using bad grammar. But the rich man himself is a resource to himself. Not because of his riches, but because of his brain, his abilities, his intellect, his ability to seek out and acquire these things. So we can be a resource to ourselves to depend upon. Again, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to depend upon God and use what he's given us as tools in our dependence upon him. So when I, when I say resources which will fade away um, and then talk about the possessing an abundance of physical and social resources, think also the concept that he, as a re he himself is a resource that he uses. Um, one of the analogies you can draw, or one of the examples you can draw from, is that who are the people in society who don't have a lot? A lot of times they aren't dependent. They're <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. Maybe I should just shut up about it. But <laughs> a lot of times they don't really help themselves out, do they? they actually a lot of times don't see themselves as able or competent or willing um, or qualified to produce a living for themselves to actually acquire the necessities of life and then bring forth an abundance. The rich man, what, is they, what do they do? They've got a confidence. They've got the, at least the attempt to understand that they can actually do something. There's kind of a difference being identified there in our social structure on earth as in, in this human system. So the rich man himself can be and is oftentimes a resource to himself, kind of the pulling himself up by his bootstrap steel, versus most of the time when we have um, a person of lowliness or of what we would consider poor uh, physical or social status, um, lacking physical resources, a lot of times they're going to be down on themselves, not use themselves as a resource, not use the tools God gave them to actually bring out about the change that they need in their life. 
In other words, the poor don't see themselves as a resource, don't see themselves as being able to accomplish anything, the rich oftentimes do. Um, you can look at Donald Trump, what does he think? He can accomplish anything, doesn't matter, right? Okay, Donald Trump, unless he is dependent upon God, will fade away. That's what we'll see in this verse. Um, enough about poorness and richness. Changing gears, we're going to talk about politics tonight. No. <laughs> All right, so back to that, that connection between verse 10 and 11. James uses this, uses this word gar, meaning for, to logically connect verse 10 and 11 together. What he's doing is he's identifying the logical connection and the logic behind his statement in verse 10 that the plusios man will pass away like the flowering grass. Um, to that end, we should expect that he will explain the process by which the flowering grass passes away. So then we have the logic behind his comparison. And that's in effect what he does. Apatilon hoth helios sunto kazonai. Kazani. That's rough right now. Begins with this phrase, with this word onatilon, which means to come forth or to cause to come forth or arise. Now the sun, helios, is the subject of this verb. It's or yeah, of this verb and of this verse, this part of the verse at least. Uh, we can see that through the nominative case being employed with that O-S looking ending or O-snake looking ending on Helios. Um, that is the nominative form of that word. And because that, it identifies it as the subject. Now in Greek, the verb has the subject, it talks about the subject within itself. So on a tiling actually has the third person singular form on it. Now the son is an it, therefore it is third person singular, which would be either he, she, or it. Because of the son, we have reference to it being an it. However, it is masculine, which identifies it as an initiator. Interestingly enough, the masculine gender in Greek, again, does not actually identify gender. It identifies role as an initiator, or being based on initiation, or responder, or being based on response. So the sun then is actually based on initiation since it is an inanimate object only moved by the forces around it. It itself doesn't move. Unless God wants to argue with me, in which case he wins. So, on a tiling, or any of you guys, either, if you guys want to throw physics out there and try and prove that the sun moves on its own accord, I'd like to read, I'd like to read about it. It'd be kind of fun. On a tiling means to ca cause to come forth or arise. The sun is the reference to the, to the action of rising and causing to come forth. Um, so with onatilin being used there as a reference to the sun's action of rising and causing of the sun in coming forth or bringing... Someone else want to do this? <laughs> I, I have no idea what is wrong with me, but for some reason, something is wrong. Therefore, we will continue and press on. Anatilin is a reference to the sun's action of rising and also the cause of the sun in rising to bring forth something as well. So there, what it's saying is that there's two things going on here, and that makes it a transitive verb, which we'll explain a little bit in, sec in, a, in a second. The transitive, let me get to the transitive verb in a second. The two actions here, we have the sun rising, and we have the sun, because of its rising, causing something to occur. Okay. Now you can see what's going on. The sun with the burning heat. Because the sun is rising, it brings forth with it burning heat. So without the sun rising, you don't have the burning heat, which makes sense. We can see that in our day. When it's nighttime, not right now, or when the clouds are out, we don't have scorching heat. We don't have burning heat. Well, when the sun is unobstructed by either the Earth's 
rotation or clouds, we didn't have burning heat available to us. Does that make sense? Okay, now to talk about the transitive verb part. The word faith is it, and this is the noun form, but histis, which is the verb form of to believe or to place a complete dependency upon something, is a transitive verb. What I mean by that, and you can kind of think of it as a transparent verb, if that helps you, um, is that in order to believe, there has to be something to believe upon or to depend upon. Like we have the chair, okay? The belief is that the chair will support you. You are believing in a chair to do something for you. Therefore, it's almost like, it isn't almost like it, there's a transparency to it. Does that make sense? Do you guys get the transparency connection? It may not work with some of the thought processes, but the concept is that there is something else which has to be partnering with the action. An object that the action is dependent upon. Okay, so a transitive verb then with on a tylen, meaning to cause to come forth or arise, identifies that the sun is the one that's causing to come forth or arise, which means it has to have something that is bringing forth or arising. Okay, now the sun isn't what is coming forth or arising. Okay, and I can prove that through the Koine Greek. However, I didn't give you that documentation. Okay. Anatylen is an active third person singular verb. Okay, it's indicative, meaning it's real, it's reality. Um, but the active part of that verb identifies that the subject, the sun, performs the action to cause to come forth or arise. Okay, so what is it causing to come forth or arise? When you don't have the answer to that question, you know that you're dealing with a transitive verb that needs an object to, be to make it a complete thought. The, the something that the sun is causing to come forth or arise, it's the sun is performing the action to really cause to come forth or arise, is to kasonai, which is up there in the New American Standard, the burning heat. Okay, you with me so far? So it's not passive. If it was a passive voice, then that would identify that the sun is actually caused itself to come forth and arise. But because the sun is, in, is the subject and the anatylon is the active voice, it's saying the sun performs the action to, come, to cause something to come forth or arise. Okay. It seems trivial, but what it does is the Koine Greek is placing a focus on the scorching heat, and you'll see why in just a second. Now look what happens to the flower of the grass. For the sun rises with the burning heat. To kasoni literally means the scorching. Okay, heat is not a part of that definition there. Um, it's been inferred through the same way that we had with the plusios, which is an adjective meaning rich or abundant in wealth, but it's the plusios one, and they because it's masculine, they made it the plusios man. This goes back again to last week. I don't know if you remember what we said about it. But Greek does this a lot of times, where it uses um, an adjective as what we actually call, um, I can't remember the term right now. It starts with an S. There's actually a part of grammar in English that we use an adjective as a substantive, actually, as a noun. 
um, because it actually places more emphasis rather than using the adjective to describe the noun we would use, like the yellow car, since we have a yellow car out front, we would talk about the yellow. Now the implication would be the yellow car or the yellow one. Which car do you drive? The yellow. That's the way that it's been employed. Okay? The emphasis isn't so much on the the car which is yellow, but the yellowness of the car. Does that make sense? Okay. That's what Greek's doing here. And To Kasoni is talking about the scorching. Well, what's the scorching referencing to? It totally, totally changes it when you take away that word heat and understand the emphasis is on the, the qualities of the scorchingness of the sun's rays. It is a scorching heat. We'll see in just a second a little bit more about that. So, Takasone is a reference to the scorching and searing heat of the sun at its strongest time and season. What would that be? Summer. Because it's the reference to the scorching and searing heat of the sun at its strongest time and season, the reference is to the hottest time of the day during the hottest time of the Earth's seasonal cycle around the sun, which we know to be summer. You guys remember how, what we talked about with Kortos last week, the word for grass? That it was a green grassy field. Okay, so we've got this transition, and we're going to see it a little bit more in just a second. We've got this transition from springtime to summer in this example. This is some of the imagery going on here. Okay, so the sun comes out, or causes to come forth the scorching heat, brings with the scorching heat during the hottest time during summer, the hottest time of the day during summer. And as a result, Kai exeranen ton Chlorton, not Xorton, which sounds like Toy Story. How about that? All right. Because of the sun coming out and bringing with it the dry or the scorching heat, it dries out the grass. Now, exeronin means become dried out. Because the sun is the subject of this part of the verse, we know that the sun is the actor of the subject. Exeronin is in the active voice, which means that the sun is what performs the action to become dried out. Now, that doesn't mean the sun is drying out. Again, that'd be the passive voice, the sun receiving the action of being dried out. You'll see what is drying out when you, we get to ton corton, the grass, and see how it's performing the action to cause the grass to become dried out. Voice in Koine Greek, and again, this is the um, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't see in English. Number one, active voice. The subject performs the action. Exeronin is in the active voice. This identifies it as performing the action to become dried out. Okay, now again, this is what we call a transitive verb because it requires something for the action to be completed upon. Okay, it's not, a, on a, it's not good enough on its own. It requires something else. Therefore, we have to have an object, which we would identify as a direct object. So it's not the sun which is becoming dried out. Otherwise, we'd have the passive voice being used, but rather the sun is performing the action to dry something else out. Therefore, we would look to the accusative case in Koine Greek to identify what we call the direct object in English. The accusative case places boundaries around an object and defines it within those boundaries. By doing so, it places emphasis and declares specificity upon it. So Koine Greek uses that accusative case, and we have it with ton korton, which again on here is not ton korton, but ton zorton for some reason. Take it up with God. What are they going to do? God ain't dead. Well, 
<laughs> yeah, but... We didn't think this one through. <laughs> All of us. That wasn't me because I'm sorry. Question. While I fix this... Trying to say something about the seasons, or is it just doing that? It's using the seasons as imagery, and, and I'm gonna we'll we'll highlight it when we get to the complete thought here. Yes. It's it's good in the sense that everybody's being drastic. Oh, the totally. Like it, it's the perfect example. Right. Right. Okay. Because of the vast of voice, we know the sun's not becoming dried out, but rather it's acting upon something to dry something else out. Um, and we look for the accusative case to identify what that something is. We've been there. Ton korton. Okay, anytime you have that OV ending on Greek, you're going to have the accusative case. I don't expect you to remember that. Just telling you that's how we know this is accusative, that OV ending. And with ton and korton, the is accusative and grass is accusative. Okay, that's how we know that the connects to that, that word. Um, so the grass is the direct object, therefore it's the recipient of the action of the sun to dry it out. So the sun is then actually drying out the grass. So because of Tonkortan, we were able to understand that the sun performs the action to dry out the grass. Now, we're familiar with the grass from verse 10, which we identified um, as a reference to the green grass found in a grassy field. Now again, when is grass green? When it's watered, when it's wet. Okay, we're talking about springtime. When it's got vibrant color, when it's got nutrients, um, I could defer to Thomas to have him explain the whole process because he <laughs> studied some of this stuff. But the ton corton, that word corton for the grass is, is epitomized in this concept of springtime. In fact, it is understood as the, the most vibrant part of its life, where it's at its peak. And it's not going to get any better than that. What happens at the people? Well, then it dies when summer comes. So we would think of spring, and that is actually a, the proper and adequate understanding of Tom Corton. Now notice what type of imagery we're being used here, and I already kind of blew this surprise for you guys, but in verse 10 we have a reference to spring through the word Corton. But then Tom Corton in verse 11 is dried out by the sun, which brings forth, what brings with it, it's scorching heat during the summer months. So there's a transition from spring in the writer's mind to summer in the writer's mind. This transition is equivalent and made through the comparison that James is making, it's making it equivalent to the Plusios man's characteristic of being rich, being, being Plusios, having an abundance of resources. But wait, there's more. Order now. And you'll get James completing the comparison by including the flower from verse 10 as well. Remember we had the flower of the grassy field in verse 10. The flower, remember, it's not the stalk we're talking about, it's the actual blossom of the flower itself. This is one of the reasons we were able to understand this imagery of springtime going on. Okay, when do flowers blossom? Typically in the spring. Now there are some that have been designed to flower other times, or during summer, and don't need certain resources like we have in springtime. However, if you, note it, if you, if you look at the Greek language, James doesn't say that the flower dries out from the sun. He says the grass does. Then he says, and uses a different word to describe the death of the flower. Ta'anthos atu exapesin is the phrase that James used to identify that the flower literally falls out of. What's it falling out of? We're going to find out. 
since anthos is the subject, so now we've got a new nominative. Remember I said that O snake little looking thing is the nominative ending to a noun? Look at it again. You've got anthos, O snake, OS, O sigma. Because of that, we know that this is now the new subject of another verb. What's that verb? Exapason, which means to fall off or fall out of. It's been translated as fall off in the New American Standard. James is identifying that the anthos falls out of the grass in which it is found during springtime. Okay, now remember, anthos isn't a reference to the stem and the petals. It's a reference to the petals, the flower part, the blossomed flower. Why is this significant? I didn't think it really was until we finished the study. We point out that anthos was seen in verse 10 as well, and remembering, again, it refers to that blossom of the flower itself. When does the flower look the best? When it's in bloom, of course. When is a flower in bloom? Springtime. So, so hang on to this springtime and summertime imagery. The word for beauty, in reference to the flower, is eupripii, or pia, and it means good appearance. It's actually derivative, a derivative of the same word that we have for glory of God, um, or praise of God. Um, same word we get for uh, the funeral concept of a eulogy. Same kind of um, root. When you really break it down deeply, uh, it's not the same root word at all. It's not like you're going to look this up in the dictionary and find both of these words, the result of it. But when you look at the etymology of the word and the construction of the word, where it came from originally and how they built it, you'll find that it's actually connected, and that's where you get this concept of good appearance. What's a eulogy designed to do? It's designed to speak good things about the person. Why? Because no one wants to speak bad things about a dead person. Okay? It just doesn't make sense. Every eulogy we hear speaks truth, and sometimes that's bad, but it is always trying to at least speak something good about the person. And eulogy is a combination of good and logic, which is word, um, or good logia, so good words. The blossoming flower is what we would identify as beautiful because of its good appearance. When we see something that's of good appearance or something that looks good in its appearance, we identify it as beautiful. That's how it works. When we see something that doesn't look good in its appearance, we say black. You know, we, we don't find it beautiful. That's the technical term, black. The translators, uh, and I don't know why they do this to, to us, uh, and not just me, but to us as, as believers and students of the Bible. They do this oftentimes. And this is one of, those one of those times when they let their literality slip a little bit, um, and it totally changes the concept of this verse. Um, maybe not the end result, and, and that's good for the translators at least keep the end result the same, but personally I want to see the image I want to see exactly what's going on so the little phrase to pros of its appearance actually doesn't really translate that literally um, the phrase ta prosopu literally means of the front part of the head now how do you get appearance out of that it just doesn't make sense the beauty of the flower what we find beautiful of the flower isn't the stem it's the front part of the blossom that we find beautiful. I mean, the back, we look at it, and it's like, okay, that's pretty. But you look at the front, it's like, wow, that's beautiful. It's the face of the flower, the front part of the head of the flower. And that word prosopu literally means the front part of the head. Pra actually being, or pros actually being the thought that you're looking face to face at something, towards something. You're looking at it, and its identity is wrapped up in its face. 
Therefore, the beauty of its flowers identifies being found in the face of the flower. The blossom of the flower, the front side of the face of the flower is what we find beautiful. Scripture holds this truth, which we take for granted. This doesn't really have any theological significance to us. However, this is just like the Bible saying to us, the earth has a circle. And if you look at Isaiah, um, the reference to the verse talks about that God looks over the sphere of the earth. All Columbus had to do to know that he was safe when he traveled the ocean blue. 1492 or whatever the 92 it was because any of the 92s would have worked 1592 1992 2022 whatever anything with the two oh, hey now you you'll be good technology if Columbus had looked upon, yeah, this is a special night, guys. Just get used to it. If Columbus had looked at, looked at that verse, he would have had no fear about falling off the face of the earth. Now, this is something scientists, some of them, are starting to figure out. The Bible actually tells truth about science, about the way the world works, and about flowers, which actually fall out of the dry ground or the dead grass because the sun has scorched it. This, I mean, if, for someone who says that the Bible doesn't teach science, they've totally missed it. And this is one of those verses that when you look at it in the original language and how the translators translated translated it literally, they would have shown that the beauty of the face of the or the beauty of the front part of the head of the flower is where we find its beauty. They would have under, we would have understood that through there. The truth that we take for granted that I'm talking about here is that we all look at the face of the flower to find its beauty. You don't look at this root system, although I think we can find beauty in every part of what God has created. But when we look at the flower, we look at its face, the front part of the blossom. Now that's a truth that doesn't, again, really have any major theological significance or bio-doctrinal significance to us, except that it teaches us that Scripture teaches what science is finding out and what anthropology and cultural and social studies are actually finding out. So what is it that's beautiful about the flower? The face, of course. Scripture knew that. We know that. We look at that. That to me is amazing, um, something we just take for granted, but scripture itself teaches. Okay, now in the verse here, the beauty of the face of the flower is said to apoleto. Now, the word apoleto is a middle voice verb meaning to perish. Middle voice meaning that the subject, in this case, the, the face of the flower, actually the flower, excuse me, in this case, the subject is the flower, and the flower itself, the blossom part of the flower, is what perishes. Now, because of that, the last part of that phrase is good, or logical, meaning that because of the beauty of the flower, the face of the flower, because of the flower, the blossom flower, because the blossom of the flower and the face of the flower fall out of the grass, its beauty is destroyed, because the beauty hinges upon the face of the flower. When those petals start falling, the beauty is destroyed. Apoleto is a middle voice verb, meaning that the flower actually participates in the action to fall out or to have the petals fall out of it. Now, it participates, meaning that there's something else that's, already, that's participating in the action with it. There's at least two parties, maybe three. Now, the grass being one of those parties, the sun being one of those parties, because of the dried out grass, the flower naturally participates in the action of falling out or perishing. Um, now, if you notice, there's this concept of life and death. When you look at springtime and you look at summertime, what happens in the springtime? Animals 
procreate. Okay, it just happens. There's this life. Flowers are are born, grow, blossom. What happens in the summer with those flowers? In our analogy here again, they die. They perish. The beauty of the face of the flower, which is once alive and beautiful, is lost during the transition from spring to summer. When the sun gets hot and scorches the grass, it kills it out. The water is dried up. It withers the flower. The flower falls apart, and thus its beauty is destroyed. Okay, We see that process every day. Scripture teaches that that's how it works. What does this have to do, though, with the Plusios man? Okay, This is part of the reason I didn't really want to focus on this verse much. The Plusios man is identified as falling or fading away in the same way that the flower and the beauty of the flower perishes. Okay, James's logical explanation for verse, for verse 10 is that the Plusios man will perish in the same logical process as does the flower and the face and the beauty, the beauty upon the face of the flower. The use of the word chi as an emphatic particle, and usually we have it as a conjunction connecting two thoughts or phrases or words together, but here we have it as a particle to use to emphasize the inclusion of the rich man in the same type of process as that of the flower. It, as an emphatic particle, it, that's why it does that. That's how we know it does that. It includes, because it's an emphatical particle, the plusios man in the same, flate, same fate as the flower of the grass. The use of chi is, as an emphatic particle includes the plusios man in the same fate as the flower of grass. It emphasizes it as an emphatic particle. Okay, now, if the logic is there that the, man, the rich man will fade away in the same way that the flower is destroyed, or the beauty of the flower is destroyed, we need to find out how that process happens. Now look at this, it is within the word poriais that the plusios man will fade away. Okay, now, the preposition ain, that little kind of backwards three E and then V means in and it identifies the location or the instrumentality of an object. Now we've used this to identify that we are in Christ. When we're saved we're placed in Christ. That's our position in Christ. Our experience may be outside of control of the Holy Spirit but our position is in Christ depending upon whether we are in fellowship or not and that model of humanity is operating in its proper structure. But it's within the pariahs of the plusios man that he will fade away. Now, pariahs, coming from the phrase taste pariahs, is a reference to the purposeful endeavors of the plusios man to acquire for himself more physical and social resources upon which to rely. This includes the maintaining of what he already possesses in abundance. So not just acquiring new things, but acquiring the maintenance of what he already has. Taste pariahs is a reference to the purposeful endeavors of the plusios man to acquire for himself more physical and social resources upon which to rely. The Gnostics would have said also that the pursuit for intelligence would then create a greater ability for man to interact with the world and rely upon himself and rely upon intelligence as a resource as well. Um, and the Greek Gnostics were, their focus was to understand or to seek out information and have data because they believed, therefore, that knowledge was power. That phrase came later as the quote that we know it and the cliche that we have, but their whole focus was on knowledge and, and getting knowledge. Um, 
The word Gnostics actually comes from Gnosis, which means knowledge or data. Now, the Pelusios man is, being a rich man, is, again, pulling himself up by his bootstraps. He's using himself as a resource. He's using his wealth as a resource. He's using his social connections and social status as a resource. And therefore, he's making journeys and create, continuing to network, as we call it in today's day and age, with others to, cre to continue to create wealth for himself. Now, the phrase literally means the journeys, so taste pariahs literally means the journeys. But again, it is a reference to his purposeful journey or endeavor to acquire for himself more physical and social resources upon which to rely. This is the location, these journeys in the sphere or in the location of these journeys that he makes for more resources that James says the rich man will fade away. It's within the journeys to acquire more for himself that James says the, the rich man will fade away within those journeys. Remember those journeys are designed to, can, to on purpose to acquire more resources. The phrase fade away, will fade away comes from the future passive indicative verb merinathesitai, which literally means fade away. Now it's a future passive indicative verb, future referring to an action which will occur in the future and is a future type of action. Passive identifying that the subject, in this case, our rich man, the plusios man, the subject is acted upon to fade away. So we have a truth of scripture here that says when the rich man goes out on a journey to acquire more for himself to rely on, he will fade away. In the same way that the grass dries out because of the scorching heat of the sun, and then the flower, the flower perishes because of that. Okay, this doesn't, didn't quite sink in for me until we get to the next couple slides here, because it's kind of difficult to abstractly think about a person as fading away. Okay, and when it when I thought of it first, I was thinking, okay, well, he's going on a journey, so as he gets farther and farther away, he fades away. There's not a bad thought there. It's just not quite on the right angle. In James' divine analogy, he identifies that the Plusios manna fades away in the same manner in which the beauty of the flower's face perishes because of the death of the grass in which it's found. And this is where we discover the, and understand the principle behind James' uh, comparison of the Plusios man to the flower of the grass. And, and this is why I believe there may have been purpose by Satan coming not for this to come out. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers, withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Through his comparison, James identifies that those who rely upon physical and social resources, which again includes their own self, skills, and abilities, that those who do so, the rich ones, will fade away. Why? Because they rely on things which are finite and not those things which are spiritual. Through his comparison, James identifies that those who rely upon physical and social resources fade away because they rely on things which are finite and not those things which are spiritual. In other words, there is nothing they can do to not fade away if they are pursuing, or if we are pursuing, physical resources, social resources, or self-resources, um, self skills, and abilities to implement and depend upon on our own apart from God, we will fade away. There's nothing we can do not to because we are acted upon by an outside force to fade away. That's, yeah, it's an outside force because it's passive. What is it? Some principle of what I would consider cosmos theos or God's world system. 
that when we rely upon, and actually we're going to get a little bit about a little bit to answer your question, but the fact is that when we rely upon ourselves, we actually fade away because we're not relying on God. Now, let me see if we can get understanding of that because it didn't quite click for me until these last two slides, this being the last of the two. Therefore, as believers who will face trials and tribulation upon the earth, we are wise to heed the warning found in, found in James's comparison of the flower to the plusius man. Rely upon God for your resources, not your own resources, or those resources, whether social or physical, which you are able to acquire through journeys designed to do so. For if you are accomplishing the latter, if you are on a journey trying to, to um, acquire resources to depend upon outside of the resource of God, you will fade away as the promise of Scripture. In other words, when we rely upon resources or those things other than God, including ourselves and our own abilities, which we call self-righteousness, when we rely, rely upon those things, we actually are fading away and not growing spiritually. Now to tie this into our trials and tribulations, what is it we said we had to do? We had to remain under our trial and tribulation. What do we do when we hit a trial? We go out. We seek out an answer to why we're going through the trial, how to go through the trial, and how to stop the pain of the trial. What we're getting, and this is why this verse is so important, is it reinforces and kind of brings back to completion the concept that we had in the beginning, that our job is to rely upon God to guide us through and depend upon Him as our only resource. Because when we depend upon God, He will use other things, and other people perhaps, but it's our relationship with God that we're supposed to be dependent upon. Not a relationship with our money, relationship with our other friends, relationship with our parents, relationship with godly wise people, stupid people, whatever. It's our relationship with God we're supposed to depend upon to get us to remain in that position of our trial. When we do anything other than that, we fade away. Now. You can think of in the sense of a color. Okay, when's a color the strongest? Strongest. Strongest. That's because like Snagglepuff. <laughs> when is the color the strongest? That's a Boyman's World quote, by the way, if anyone didn't recognize that. When's the color the strongest? When, a, when is a flower the strongest? When it's at its most vibrant point, right? If you take a picture with a digital camera, print it out on regular printer paper, put it on your fridge, in five years, is it going to have the same color as it did? No. Why? Because it fades out. When If we have dependence upon God in a trial, and then we get to another trial and then choose to depend on something else, what happens? Are we going to be as strong as we were? Are we going to grow spiritually like we did? No. We're fading out. That's kind of the imagery. And you kind of have to change your thought process a little bit to understand the concept of a person fading out rather than perishing in that sense. But when we fade out, the concept behind it is that we are actually moving from what would be considered the most vibrant part of life to a lesser part. And that actually harmonizes greatly with Scripture because Scripture says that bios, or physical life, is life. And then it says that soul life is actually one stage above that and a better type of life. You, bios life is nothing without soul life, without um, suke. But when you have zoes, or spiritual life, pneuma, when pneuma comes into the body and the soul, it actually creates zoes, which we have as being the, the highest possible type of life. Jesus said he came, not to, or he came to give life and that abundantly. The reason they said that abundantly is because of that word zoes. He said he came to give life. That word zoes is the most precious, the most vibrant type of life that we can have because it is spiritual life the way we were designed. If we're not dependent upon God, whether in a trial or in just 
good times, bad times, whatever, if we're out of fellowship, not dependent upon God, we are actually being acted upon to fade away because we're not actually living and operating according to the Holy Spirit. Does that kind of get the concept across a little more? Is that life is this. Zoe's life is the highest order. And when we're not in that highest vibrant life because we're dependent upon something else besides God, we fade away from it and we fade down to soul life, which then if you follow the progression, actually comes down to a carnal fleshly life. Question? Like, like the Yeah, you can think of it, and maybe you can, maybe this will work. Is that if you think of it like a health meter, and when it's when it's fully one hundred percent, that would be that when you're dependent upon God, and when it's fully zero percent, that would be that you're dependent upon something other than God. Now, that's two extremes, but when you stop depending upon God and Bible doctrine, you actually start becoming conformed again to the world, which again we're going back to Romans twelve one and two, which is our whole model for for spiritual growth. When you're dependent upon God, you actually start increasing. When you are dependent upon something else, you actually start decreasing. So in that sense, you fade away to a lesser life or a lesser quality of spiritual maturity. You may have a year where you are going through trials, you're completely in fellowship with God, because it's totally possible. It's just a matter of whether we trust and obey and submit to Him. But if you go through a year of that, think about the difference in your life and your attitude. And then say there's a day that you choose not to after that year. So 365 days of perfection, of perfect living the way God designed, you're going to have a vibrant life. Not going to be rich necessarily, but you're going to have vibrant life and actually be blessed in the sense of having plural inner happinesses, which is the word makarios. That means that you have a, a joy that is more than one type of joy. It's a plural word. So you have plural inner happinesses that's produced by the Holy Spirit because of your position of being in under his control. Then when you break that pattern of being controlled by the Holy Spirit or in fellowship or operating in that proper model of humanity and, and choose to depend upon yourself or something else, you actually will lose that. And you could not depend upon God the rest of your life and you will end up just like the non-believer. Everything we do comes down to whether we depend upon God or not. We can learn Bible doctrine. The Bible doctrine is just data and academics if we don't have it within the scope of our relationship with God. And that's what it's getting at. That's what it's saying is that we can know everything, we can do everything, but if we depend upon something other than God, we will fade away from spiritual growth and spiritual maturity because we're dependent upon something that cannot produce spiritual maturity within us, just like the rich man. Riches cannot buy your spiritual growth. They cannot get you out of trials and tribulations in the same way that God can. They may make it easier to go through. They may make it enjoyable even. They may make the situation go away. But the trial is still there because it's an internal spiritual growth trial. And that puts me out of my misery.